0: Shiny morning. Uh, Good to uh, have a little bit of sunshine. We've had a lot of rain recently, haven't we? I know it's all good, but uh, nice to have a bit of sun. Uh, Some of the guys are going to be out uh, uh, preparing the barbecue for us uh, this morning. Uh, First Sunday of July. Uh, so please make sure you stick around for our Sausage Sizzle Sunday after the service today. Uh, hopefully you're ready to get into what is week six. Uh, I can't believe we're into week six of a seven-week series. It's entitled Revelation, a letter to the seven churches. And we've been looking at these as seven helps to keep the church healthy. And this week, the letter is addressed to the Philadelphian Fellowship. Uh, that's the title of this morning's message. We're looking at Revelation 3, uh, 7 through to 13. Philadelphia, of course, is uh, the youngest of these seven cities. It was settled around about 150 years uh, after the, uh, before the birth of Christ, It's only uh, one of two cities that still remain in that region today. And of all the seven churches, Philadelphia receives the greatest praise. There's no condemnation. There's only commendation that Christ has for the church. In fact, the church's impact was so great that when the rest of Asia had actually fallen to the Muslims, it remains a free Christian city and the last bastion of Asian Christianity today. So we're going to have a look at our video clip and then I'll come back and preach the word.
1: Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love, was the sixth city addressed in the letters of Revelation. It's also the city we know least about because we haven't found many archaeological ruins here. Today, ancient Philadelphia is buried underneath this modern city of Al-Shahir, An inscription discovered here suggests that Philadelphia was founded back as early as the 2nd century BC under the reign of King Eumenes II of Pergamum. He named Philadelphia after his younger brother, Attalus II, whose nickname was Philadelphus, in honor and loyalty to his older brother, the king. During the first century, Philadelphia was situated on the imperial military route west to Rome, meaning the city would see regular visits from soldiers, travelers, and merchants. The soil around Philadelphia was renowned, leading to the production of exceptional grapes and wine. However, in 92 AD, Emperor Domitian issued an edict for Asia province, which required many vineyards to be cut down and replaced with corn. This action damaged the reputation and economy of Philadelphia. Very little is known about the buildings and the layout of the Philadelphia of the Roman period. As you can see, some remains of a theater have been discovered, and coins indicate that at the end of the second century, an imperial temple was erected here. Otherwise we just don't know much yet about the Philadelphia of John's time. However, we do know this. The church here at Philadelphia was solid. It's the only church of the seven that wasn't criticized for anything. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Revelation 3 7 through 11.
0: All right, let's pray as we get into the word this morning. Thank you, God. Thank you, as we come to your word again, you want to speak to us. A word that's been written 2,000 years ago, and yet by your spirit this morning, breathe fresh inspiration and life into your word, that we, the church today, might continue to be encouraged, to persevere through everything that will happen until you, Christ, come again. Lord, we receive your word this morning and we thank you for it now in Jesus name. Amen. All right, today we're going to look at the uh, a picture, I suppose, a picture the praises and the promises that are given to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, So today, firstly, let's have a look at the the picture of our Saviour that Jesus provides. Verse 7, it's a picture of his conduct and his character. And it says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus declares, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So firstly, dealing with the key of David, it's a reference to an incident that took place under the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah 22:18, 18, King Hezekiah reigned at this time. And he had a chief of staff called Shebna. And Shebna was... Uh, lining his own pockets, so to speak. And so God took him to task, and in verse 18 it says, I will take him and whirl him around. I've got that image of a, like a discus thrower. And I will hurl him into a far country. And he would be replaced by a godly man called Elikim, whom God says in Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two, I will place on his shoulder... The key of the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And so Jesus, of course, in the Davidic line is the final and ultimate king. And what he's saying is here, I hold the ultimate authority. No one can oppose me. Jesus calls himself holy. To be holy here, it means to be incorruptible. To be true, it means he's the genuine article. He's not fake or phony. Who he says and what he does match up. So in this place of instability due to an earthquake that took place in AD 17, he lays this foundation of faith that is built on truth. Folks, we live today in a world that... uh, doesn't uphold truth anymore, does it? There is no absolute truth in the world that we live in today. And yet the rejection of this absolute truth, I think, is the, is the very thing that's destroying our moral foundation in the world. Dentists today, they deal with tooth decay. But nobody in the world today seems to be dealing with truth decay The truth just seems to be decaying more and more and more. We see it in the uh, social media. We see it in the news. We see it through the governments. We see it in education. A lot of the stuff our kids get taught in education today is nowhere near, far and far removed from the truth. But I was very heartened this week to discover that the federal government is going to pass legislation in order to formulate a a group, a department that is going to deal with dis- or misinformation. So you can trust the government... You just say yes to whatever the government wants you to say yes to and that will be the truth. And we know that's not true, is it? And yet the truth today is very subjective, it's very personal. How many people have ever said to you, well, Andrew, you know, that's your truth. What's true for you is true for you, but what's true for me is very different. And yet the reality is it's no different in here than it is out there. Did you know that 91% of Christian teenagers and 66% of adults in the church don't actually believe that there is ultimate truth? And yet Jesus says in John 18, 37, I am the truth. And the very next day he would appear before Pilate and he says, The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate has that great response, doesn't he? What is truth? You know, throughout history, many religious leaders have have tried to lead people to the truth. Or they've tried to teach people a truth. But only one man throughout history has ever declared to be the absolute authority in truth. And in John 17, 17, Jesus tells us there that God's word is truth. So the Bible actually contains... Enough truth to solve all of the world's problems. Yet without the Bible, the ethical foundations of life are unstable. Without Christ, this world is crumbling. Now, to shut the door in this context, the, the Jews in Philadelphia, they were opposing Gentiles coming in. You remember from uh, our uh, series in Acts, you know, Paul again and again had to deal with this whole idea that uh, Jews wanted to become Christians, but they had to obey all of the Jewish laws as well. And so if Gentiles came in, that was the same sort of context. Yes, you can, you can receive Jesus... But you also have to obey all these laws. Jesus says, no, no, no. I paid the admission price for everybody to come into my kingdom. Now, the people were coming in through the door. They weren't exiting. They were coming in to the kingdom. And so what it's saying here is that he's opened up a door. And what Christ opens, no one can close. He's opened up this door into the kingdom. That's why the Church of Philadelphia still has the open door in order to evangelize people to come into that kingdom. And it's an open door that Christ continues to have for us today so that we can keep inviting people in. But folks, a time's going to come when the door to salvation will be closed. It's going to come into that Matthew 24. Remember? As it was in the days of Noah. Remember, people were going about their lives just like nothing was wrong. And then the pitter patter of rain and the door closed. And we're going to have people bang, bang, banging. Let me in, let me in, let me in. God's going to say, Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. <laughs> it's going to be too late to enter in. But praise God, that's not today. Amen. Praise God, that door is still open. We still have opportunity. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, you can receive him as your Lord and Saviour. You can be forgiven and you can know that entrance into the kingdom of heaven but we've got a responsibility to still be inviting people in today. Jesus says in John 10 verse 7, I am the door. All who enter in through me will be saved. So Jesus alone can open the door to heaven and eternal life and he can shut that door to hell and death. And when he opens that door, when we've walked through that door into heaven, all of a sudden all of the treasure of heaven... All of the grandeur and splendor of all that God is, belongs to us as his children. You see, he not only has the key, Jesus is the key to salvation. Frank uh, Stockton uh, uh, tells a story. It's entitled, The Lady or the Tiger?, It's a story that takes place in ancient times. A man has done wrong and he's in the arena uh, before all of these witnesses and he's standing before these two doors. He cannot see what is behind the doors but behind one door is a ferocious tiger ready to devour him and behind the other door is this beautiful woman. Then there's this uh, subplot seated behind that is the king's daughter, and they're madly in love with one another. And so as the story goes on, the climax is that he's standing there with a decision to make, and she sort of gives him the nod. But the problem is that we don't know which way she nods. Is she so in love with him... That she wants nobody, if she can't have him, nobody else can, and so she's nodding towards the ferocious tiger? Or is she so in love with him that she's willing to give him up for another woman? We actually don't know how the story ends. The whole idea is you put your own ending to it. But those two doors teach us a lesson. Which door do we walk through? There are two doors, one into heaven and one into hell. One has a ferocious beast behind it that will devour us and the other has the love of God. We've got to be asking ourselves as we live our lives, what motivates us? What are we doing to help people walk through the right door? There's lots of doors in life that we can walk through, isn't there? You know, the first and foremost, we want to walk through that door of salvation. And when we've walked through that door, then we have the Holy Spirit leading us through different doors. You might be finding yourself standing in front of a door today and you're not too sure. Jesus says, I'm the one who holds the key to your future. I'm the one who can open the right doors for you and close the wrong one. So often we walk through the wrong door because we're not following the Lord's lead. He says, I can make a way. I can hold your future secure in my hands I don 't know about you, but that's good news. I don 't have to try to think up what am I supposed to do? Well, if I follow the Lord, He will lead me in the right directions. So we've got to live our lives built on the truth, on the foundation of God's word, and then the doors will naturally open to the things that God has for us. So that's a picture of our Savior in his character and conduct. next. Jesus provides us with praise for the saints. Praise for the saints. Point two, if you take notes. Verses eight to 10, Jesus praises the church for two things, saying, I know that you have little strength. Now the word strength there is the word dunamis. And it's where we get that word power. So he's not talking about physical strength here. He's talking about this spiritual strength. Yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name, So he praises the church for persevering and professing the name of Jesus. Verse 10, he promises protection. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Who are this uh, synagogue of uh, Satan crowd? They are the Jews that are in the synagogue. They have rejected Jesus. Remember, they've got to bow down. Yeah? They've rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, and there's only two Lords either Jesus is Lord or Satan is Lord. So it's a picture of the world we live in today, isn't it? Uh, quite often we can feel powerless. To what's going on. Quite often we don't feel like we have a, have a voice in the world today. But we've got to make sure that we continue to persevere. Continue to hang in there. Because the great encouragement is in the end. Jesus Christ will vindicate. Vind- Everybody's mouthing it to me. What is it everybody? Vindicate. Jesus will vindicate. I'm pretty good at making up my own words anyway Steph. I don't need much help. Jesus will vindicate us in the end. So we've got to be people who demonstrate and witness the word of God in our lives. We've got to keep demonstrating to people as we declare the name, yeah, that that name is based on a foundation of truth in his word. And that word can be trusted. In 1 Peter 3 verse 15 it says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Lots of books out there today claim to be the word of God. But only the Bible asserts that words come straight from the mouth of God. 2,600 times in the scripture it says, Thus says the Lord. So when the Bible speaks, understand God speaks. All scripture is God breathed, God exhaled. It comes from the very heart of God You know where the Bible originates from. It's a 1600 year journey. Right back from the very start. It's been written over 40 generations by 40 authors. All the way from kings and scholars to poets and prophets and and peasants have written into the scriptures. It's been written on three different continents, in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic. It covers hundreds of different subjects. And yet, all the way through, right from Genesis to Revelation, it has that same theme, the salvation of the world through faith in Jesus Christ. And the fact that it's a a collection of all of these different authors and books put together containing that all the way through actually adds to the reliability, the historical... That's why we're looking at these video clips, the historical evidence and reliability of the Word of God, as opposed to books that are just written by one man. The Koran, the Book of Mormon, all written, of course, after the Bible and parts taken from the Scriptures. You know, we have 24,633 full or partial texts of the New Testament. Verified when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, actually adding to their authenticity. We actually know that it's 99% accurate in everything that was originally uh, written about. The only uh, textual variants are are things like names, you know, uh, things that don't affect the meaning and the ultimate application and interpretation of the word. You know, I was thinking of Caitlin's name this morning. You know, you can, you can spell that with a K or a C, but it's still Caitlin. And it's the same with the scriptures. So we can absolutely know that the words that we are reading this morning, that were written by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos 2,000 years ago, are the very words that we are reading today. In Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is flawless. Mine aren't. You just heard me. I don't get too easy. Yours aren't either. But God's are. So we've got to remember in this world that is crumbling, that the foundations we stand firm on are the word of God and the name of Jesus. In this world that actually is... I suppose diametrically opposed to the word of God, in the end we need to remember that we will be vindicated. As Oliver Goldsmith states, you can preach a better sermon with your life than you can with your lips. So if Christ lives in you, then you will preach Christ by the way that you live. But Jesus hasn't left us void of power to persevere, has he? We go all the way back to Acts 1 verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. But the fact here that he says you have little power points to the fact that the church, generally throughout time, does not realise the full potential that God has placed within it for ministry. You see, every one of you, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you've been given gifts, spiritual gifts, Holy Spirit power to use within the body of Christ, the church, in order to build up the fellowship and be a witness for Jesus. Yet how few actually activate God's power in us and through us by the Holy Spirit? You see, the reality is that here this morning... There is a whole lot of untapped resource, a whole lot of power that God is hoping would rise up and those gifts would be used in order for this to be a powerful place, in order for God's message to continue to go out and reach our potential. So if you're feeling the pinch this morning, if the world's pressuring you a little bit, just remember those words. The Lord says, I will... Be patient, persevere, tap into that Holy Spirit power until Christ comes again. So finally, Jesus provides us with the promises for the saints. Promises, oh, I love promises. All God's promises are yes and amen. So verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will. There's the promise. Not a might, not a could. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So there's going to be this testing. This testing is going to reveal who's in the kingdom and who's not. So the entire church at one time, as we've gone through history, they all suffer different trials to see who is true. So it means the preservation now in times of trial, but it also means the evacuation to come at the great tribulation. So the only question really you've got to ask yourself is, am I rapture ready this morning? This is one of those clearest promises in the Bible that Christ is coming to carry us away before this great tribulation begins. At the moment, we need to endure patiently. But then Jesus promises in verse 11, I am coming soon. Notice how big I put that. I didn't know how, how loud to shout because that, that's something that, that's got to be declared, doesn't it? You know, I went online and uh, one site promised the best procrastination joke ever. And I'm a bit of a procrastinator, so I clicked on and you know what it said? Coming soon. Oh, I'll think about that for a moment. Some of you might think uh, Jesus saying "coming soon" is uh, a bit of a joke because, let's be honest, it's been two thousand years. Where is he? When is he coming back? You think we've got to realise is it's not a it's not a measure of time. What it actually means there is when it actually happens. At that moment, remember last week we talked about Christ is counting down. At that moment, when he hits or hundred, depending on which way you want him to count, he's coming. And it's going to happen rapidly. It means there isn't going to be any stopping of it. I love to tell the one about the tourist who was travelling through Rome. And he came to Tuscany. And he drove his car up through these two beautiful gates and up to this wonderful house where there was this magnificent vineyard in Tuscany. And he got out of the car, and there was only one man over pruning some, uh, some vines. And uh, he went over and said, Sir, are you the owner? He said, No, 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 I'm the manager. He said, The owner is away in the holy city, Rome. And he said, Well, do you mind if I look around? Sure, help yourself. Well, the man looked around, all of the paths were spotless, all of the veggie gardens were perfect, all of the flowers were groomed, all of the vineyard was cut, everything was spotless. And he went back to the manager and he said to the manager, he said, "Uh, how long has the owner been away? The manager said, oh, about 12 years. He said, well, how do you know what to do? He said, well, he's written it down for me in this book, so I know exactly what he wants me to do. He said, but but I don't understand. He said, he has been gone 12 years, but you're working and keeping everything immaculate like he's coming back next week. He said, no, 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 sir. He said, I'm working so hard because I'm expecting him back today. You see, that's the way we should be living our Christian lives. We should be living like Christ was crucified yesterday, that he rose again this morning, that he's ascended on high and he's coming back this afternoon. That's the way that we should be living and so Christ's coming in relation to this context is in Matthew 24 where it says there, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So it's in relation to that that he talks about, I am coming soon. There's going to be this final climactic upheaval. And we're going to keep having that concept of, he is coming soon. You see, there's nothing that has to happen in history right now in order for Christ not to come today. That's why each generation, if that's not true, then we, 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 could, we can please ourselves, really, can't we? Could be another 2,000 years, who knows, what's the point? The whole idea is that we live in the hope and the anticipation that Jesus Christ can come today. Look what Jesus says in Luke 21:28. When you see these things beginning to come to pass, lift up your head and rejoice, for your redemption is drawing near. So that's the connection when Christ says, I am coming soon. And then he instructs us there, hold on to what you have. Hold on to the salvation you have so that no one will take your crown. So as things are getting harder and harder to be a Christian in the world today, as hostility increases, as our secular culture moves further and further away from Christian practices and morality, don't give up. Now to take your crown not talking about taking your salvation it's talking about your rewards in uh, second corinthians five verse ten the apostle paul wrote for we that's us that's christians must all appear before the judgment seat of christ that each one may receive what is due them for the things done while in the body whether good or bad so let me be clear jesus is going to reward his saints for their service so it's not a courtroom picture where the judge is going to decide the guilt or innocence of a person. Yeah, That's something, if you're a Christian, you've already dealt with that on the cross before you left. So the picture we have today is that of a stadium. And there is a, a platform, it's called the beamer, yes? And it's like an awards ceremony. So you can imagine athletes competing in the arena, Yes? And you can imagine the judge sitting there watching them compete. Jesus, our judge, sits at the beamer. He watches us run the race of life. And then at the end, we come forward and receive our participation award. It's a a garland, a wreath, a crown. It's not the crown that Christ wears. He wears a, a diadem. We wear a Stephanos, a a wreath. When is all this going to happen and where? It's going to happen in heaven, after the rapture, before the second coming. So what are we going to be rewarded for? We're going to be rewarded for what we did in our works of service through our salvation. The race that we ran, the spiritual gifts, the power that we've used that God has given us. In 1 Corinthians 3.13, it says it will be revealed. Your service to your saviour will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each one's works. The Bible uses a, a metaphor of a house. Jesus is the foundation. What are you building on? If you're building on that foundation, then what are you building with? He talks in the passage about gold and silver, precious stones? Or are you building with hay and wood and straw? It comes back to the three little pigs, doesn't it? <laughs> he's going to set fire to your life and he's going to expose what you have done with the gifts that he has given to you. And he's going to... Reward you accordingly. So it's not a time of condemnation. No, no, no. It's a time of commendation. It's not a time of rebuke. It's a time of reward. It's not a time of punishment, but a time of praise. And then Jesus promises, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God, and never again will he leave it. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. It had two great pillars out the front of the Holy of Holies. One of them was called Jachin, J-A-C-H-I-N, yes? And it meant permanent. And on the other was Boaz, and it meant strength. So there's a sense of there's going to be this place of strength and permanence. You know, we've been looking through these ruins, haven't we? And have you noticed that generally all that's left is the pillars? Now, the promise here is that you never have to go out again. 17 AD, huge earthquake through the region, affected many of the cities. The aftershocks continued for two years Some of the inhabitants were so afraid, they used to live out in the countryside. But if they lived in the city, when there was this shock, they would run out for fear. Jesus is saying to them, no, no, no. You're going to come in and I'm going to be your strength and your permanence. And you will be with me forever. And then Jesus promises, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So it's this idea of permanency, isn't there? This idea of protection. These three names that are going to be written for us to be victorious. Of course, a change of name would have been exactly... All the way through, I hope I haven't haven't been too uh, light on for you. But all the way through, in each one of these cities, Jesus looks at the city... And he takes this physical place and he makes these spiritual applications, yes? Name changes in Philadelphia happened. The first one in uh, 17 AD, Tiberius Caesar, he actually gave them the money to rebuild the city. So they renamed the city uh, Neo-Caesarea, which means the new Caesar. A little bit later on, Emperor Vespian he was kind to the citizens and they renamed it after his wife, Flavia. And then they reverted back uh, uh, to calling it Philadelphia again. But when Jesus says, my name will be on you, there's this, there's this sense of, of permanency. His name isn't going anywhere. The name of God. The whole idea is that he is going to make us God-like. Godliness is uh, shortened for God-likeness. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in us, isn't it? That's what we're supposed to be doing here. We're to be godly and God-like. Secondly, Jesus says, I will write on them the name of the city of my God. And of course, we've got uh, chapters uh, 21 and 22 of Revelation where we get this vivid description of this wonderful new city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. But if you're looking in the real estate... Nobody looks in the paper anymore, do they? I was going to say, have you looked in the paper? Generally, we look online these days. No offence to anybody who still looks in the paper. get this little blurb, don't you, about the house. In like three lines, they're trying to tell you enough about the house that you want to go and visit. But when you actually go up for the open inspection, (gasps) wow, it's a lot better, isn't it? in person, actually seeing it, than what they're trying to communicate. You know, I think that's the way it is in the Scriptures. God has given us this, this, this picture of, of what the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth is going to look like, but it's going to pale into insignificance when we actually go, Oh! No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can possibly conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. But here's a little taste Revelation 21, 1-5, to John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Don't worry, I won't yell. Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. So once again, it's the reversal, isn't it? Revelation is the reversal of what happened in the Garden of Eden Eden in Genesis. He's going to walk. And there's some things here in this old house we live in that aren't going to be in the new house. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there's going to be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Hallelujah. How long did it take God to make this? Six days. It's pretty impressive because he did it El Nilo out of nothing. And Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. How long has it been gone? Two thousand years. If he could do this in six days, imagine what that's gonna look like. It's gonna pale into insignificance, isn't it? And in Revelation 21, verse 25, it says this On no day will the gates, the doors, ever be shut, for there will be no night there. No danger, no worries, no stress, no need to lock the door of your mansion, no need to get insurance. So that's the three promises. The promise is the crown, the name, and the new home. And while we don't know what the name is, we certainly know from Revelation 14 that he's going to write that name on our foreheads. But the other people, the unbelievers, they're going to have the name of the beast and the number of his name. So when Christ comes again, he's going to make everything new. No renovating what's old. Everything will be new. So let me conclude this morning. i tell you about an elderly couple who uh, passed away and they appeared at the pearly gates. St. Peter came and he opened up the gates and he welcomed them in. And he said to them, let me give you a tour of heaven. And he took them first to the mansion. And the man, as he stood inside, he was like, wow, this is incredible. There was stuff in that mansion that no one had ever seen on earth. And he said to St. Peter, he said, well, (laughs) how much is a home like this going to cost me? Saint Peter said, no, 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 it's free. Jesus has paid the price. Then he took him to the great banquet hall he looked at all this food, and there was food there that appeared in heaven that had never appeared on earth. And he said, well, how how much does it cost to dine at this sort of restaurant? So Peter said, well, you're not picking up on this, are you? This is heaven. It's free. And then the doors opened up, and he saw this beautiful 18-hole golf course. It was the best golf course he'd ever seen. And he said, well, how much are the green fees to play on something like this? He said, no, no, no. It's heaven. It's free. You can play as long and whenever you want. <gasps> and then the glory on his face fell. And he started to growl. And he looked at his wife and he said, You! This is your fault! If it wasn't for your blasted brand muffins, I could have been here 10 years ago! It's heaven, eh? It's a place we all want to go, uh, but people aren't dying to get there. So I finish up this morning, today the door of heaven is open for us to invite people into the kingdom in an unstable world we can stand on the truth of God's word because God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And as we live in anticipating Christ's return, the whole idea is we serve our saviour with the spiritual gifts that he's given to us. Verse 13, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Why don't you stand as a worship team, come back. Hey, next week we are finishing off in Laodicea. I think everybody has heard of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And we want to talk next week about what we can do to live a red-hot faith. So if you want to read that passage, Revelation 3, 14 to 21 in preparation for next week. God bless you.